You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Web Radio. You're listening to The Prologue, a weekly program bringing you introductions to writers and books you may not be familiar with. My name is Doug Dahlgren. I'll be your host. I'm an author myself, and you can find my work on Amazon, Books a Million, Barnes & Noble, as well as my own personal website, www.dougdahlgren.com, and I hope you'll do that. Now, we call this show The Prologue because that's what it is. While our introductions are mainly for writers, we love to bring you interesting people with just a good story to tell from other fields and other endeavors as well. Now, listeners, let me ask you this. Do you have a pen and a pencil handy? Something to write on. won't hurt to have that stuff handy because, you see, throughout the show, there's going to be information that we give out that you may want to make note of, like this, for instance. If you or someone you know has a book or that interesting story that just needs to be talked about, I want you to reach out to me. You can do that through email, and there's two different addresses. There's Doug at AmericasWebRadio.com, or you can use Doug at DougDahlgren.com. Now, I'd love to speak with you or your friend about having them on a future program, so please email me today. Now, we've got a very special guest this hour, and we're lucky to catch him at a time when he's not teaching or mesmerizing audiences with readings of his work. Now, poets are the lighthouses of our souls, and I sincerely hope I didn't just plagiarize somebody with that, but they speak from within us, from within themselves, to something that is within us. The communication can be instantaneous, or it might take a while to soak in. Notables in this field that we all know about would be Edgar Allan Poe, Walt Whitman, Rudyard Kipling, Oscar Wilde, D.H. Lawrence, Mr. Tolkien, Mr. Thoreau, and Jack Kerouac. Now, from Georgia, we have some very special ones, Sidney Lanier and James Dickey, among others, and that list is growing. Now, Charles Clifford Brooks III is rapidly working his way to that pinnacle not only through his writing, but through his work supporting and advancing other artists through his Southern Collective Experience, an organization Brooks founded in 2010. A growing group of writers and artists who, as they put it, seek to promote the arts in all its forms, providing that integrity, high standards, classical understanding of the past, present, and the future of expression do exist. Cliff is here this hour. And before I bring him on, I want to please remember to thank two groups of very special listeners that we have here for the prologue. First, the men and women in our armed forces, stationed around the world, working hard every day and putting it all on the line to keep us safe back here at home. Freedom's not free, folks. It's bought and paid for daily by these brave soldiers, airmen, Navy, and Marines. And we thank them for their service and sacrifice and for being listeners. Now, also, we don't want to forget those first responders who are here at home. That's those police, fire, rescue personnel who rush to our aid when we need their help. We honor them and thank them for all that they do, and we're honored to have them as listeners as well. Now, the draw of broken eyes and whirling metaphysics, 
I'm going to have fun with that one today. Let me start that again. The Draw of Broken Eyes and Whirling Metaphysics is a collection of two books under one cover. Charles Clifford Brooks III is a poet, a teacher, and a freelance writer. He's a native of Athens, Georgia, growing up running wild among the trees and the open air all over his home state. Never a huge fan of public school or just being indoors for that matter, he began his writing as an escape. His passion for letters grew over time and into short stories and humorous nonfiction he became famous for in smaller literary circles. It wasn't until 2003 that he took up poetry as his sole muse. In 1999, he received a Bachelor's of Science in History and Political Science from Shorter College in Rome, Georgia. That same year, he was inducted as a master member of the National Creative Society. Before turning teaching and creative writing into a means of financial survival, Cliff also worked as a bookseller, juvenile probation officer, and a social worker. His book, the Draw of Broken Eyes and Whirling Metaphysics has been nominated for two push carts, a Pulitzer Prize in Poetry, and Georgia Author of the Year. Cliff's with us from his home near Jasper, Georgia. Folks, this is your prologue, your introduction to Charles Clifford Brooks III. Cliff, how are you, sir? I am fine and dandy like sour candy, sir. How are you doing? Absolutely great. Thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, it's a pleasure. Your book is, as I said earlier, two books in one, really. Uh, the Draw of Broken Eyes and Whirling Metaphysics. I'm doing better. Are you there, have nailed it. I have got it down. Now, are there, <laughs> are there different themes expressed in each of these two combined works? They, and I'm, I'm going to go on the air uh, and, and, and really kind of, it, I, I mentioned it before, and uh, but I really want to nail it down on a show like this, that the difference is is that the similarity, rather, is that they, as I take all my poetry, literally from my life experiences, from the time I picked up the pen to put this book down to the end when I found some kind of resolve in, in who I am, where I'm going, and who I hope to be in the future. The Draw Broken Eyes, uh, I mentioned, I want to mention because it is the age-old poet who couldn't find that love and did find that love and it didn't work out well and not in the fact that it was a breakup but the, the um, part of the course tragedy that she vanished and uh, I was never able to find her and in the um, uh, equally melodramatic life of a poet even though I couldn't find her I knew that if she was going to find me she would hopefully Google me and find the book and so within the book I put a, not subtext, but maybe a code of language that we use, phrases that we use that would um, alert her to know that I was waiting and that I was, that you know, the forlorn Poe, you know, you know oh, no, kind of guy that would still be here. And now, you know, then one's the funny now, I really see that uh, it served a real purpose. But that book still encapsulated the years after Whirling Metaphysics uh, closed out. Now, you would think that that one would come after Whirling, but the, the succinct nature of it and the more immediate language in it, really uh, my publisher decided to put it first to really you know, pull the, the, pull the reader in in a very passionate, direct, immediate way to what I was writing. 
Whirling Metaphysics is more of a photo album of my childhood, uh, early experiences with pain, joy, self-realization. Um, and uh, that really, that's really kind of the, the only real difference between the two, but the language I use, the editing I put into both, doesn't give a jarring effect between the two. Um, so that it is kind of a, a symphony unto itself from the present and then a reminiscent kind of memoir look to the past. Uh, in the end, there's a epic called the Gateman's Hymn of Ignoration that I wrote as a fourth afterlife, uh, being a huge fan of Dante, that uh, working in social services, I thought, man, there's got to be a place worse than hell for some folks. And so just as a catharsis, I wrote that and um, it, to, to, to keep my soul clean, as it were. And um, it's... Uh, it's a little bit longer, and I thought people didn't want, want, didn't want to read it, but the funny story behind that is I didn't know it was in the manuscript when I sent it to the publisher, and I thought, oh, man, no, it's too long. People won't like that. And the publisher said, well, we're not going to publish it unless you leave it in there. And then, of course, there's that you know minute, second, oh, okay, yeah, 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 leave it in there, leave it in there. So it is really two full books and then the epic at the end. So it's a full 200 pages for folks to probably learn more about me than they'd ever want to know. Now, we're all hanging out here on the edge of our fingernails. How did it work out with the young lady? I, I never um, I never found out what happened to her. Okay, we'll leave that alone. But you took a shot. I, I, I feel like I should chew the blues music. There, 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 there. You know? Now, so, I mean, again, it sounds sad, but I've moved beyond that and learned from it. So, there you go. You there know, you go. Don't, don't cry for me, Argentina. You know all what I'm right. saying? Now, your work is... It's about places, feelings, ideas. How would you describe your particular brand of poetry? I struggled with that um, with, with with that question for a while, not because I was afraid of being uh, grouped in with a certain movement or, or one person, but with me um, to tell you the first. And I'm not, you know, again, I'm, I'm, a, I'm from a long line of car dealers with long stories. Plus, from I'm from from the south, and I love to tell stories. So I'm trying to keep this to think uh, with the time that we have, but. Um, when I, I, I read, I was aware, obviously, and I had my favorite poets growing up, but I never considered myself a poet. So when my agent decided that was the, the direction I was going to go, I didn't read poetry at all because I was, I was afraid of, uh, of, a, of a, an accidental transference of what I was reading into my own work. So when I sat down, I really did over three years hone my own voice. And then it was years later that a musician pulled me aside and said, you know, you write poetry the way uh, composers put notes on a scale. And it hit close, but I couldn't figure out exactly what he was saying until I really went back and read again. And the internal rhyme and the way that it pulls along melodically fits perfectly. Um, I've kind of termed or, or tried to coin the, and I'm sure like you just said, like I hope I'm not plagiarizing anybody, Southern Surrealism. Um, is kind of the, 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 the genre though invented that I feel like I fit into because I don't really cleave to any one kind of form that's been seen in the past. And, uh, you know, I'd love to say I meant to do that, but it's just been a, it's been a very, very, um, advantageous, uh, side effect of the way that I create poetry. So it is very Southern. It is very, you know, it, it is Southern because that's where I'm from. You know, that's the language that I use. But um, it, it, as far as I can tell, I mean, it, it's really kind of independent unto itself. Southern surrealism. That's pretty good. That, that covers a lot of ground, and yet I think that does define you as to what you're doing here. Listen, um, 
Where can folks find out more about you? Where can they find and order your book and just get more basic information from you? Uh, if you were to get on Google, and, uh, and much to my mother's chagrin, uh, and that's a bad way you're going to find something embarrassing, but if you Google the words Clifford Brooks and Poet, you will learn more about me than you would ever want to know from the interviews, radio shows, um, uh, the conversations I've had with other poets that have gone into magazines. But if to, to find more of that crystallized in the one spot, I have a website, www.cliffbrooks.com. To find the broader scope of it, you can go to the uh, company I developed called the Southern Collective Experience, where you can not only see where those stories in my past congealed into one spot, but then those same experiences with those that are uh, in the same uh, in, in the same company and see how we all kind of gel together. My first book, uh, The Draw Broken Eyes and Whirling, Whirling Metaphysics, and this is brand new, right? Uh, no pun intended. Hot off the presses. My new uh, publisher, uh, Kudzu Leaf Press, has, uh, re- is reissuing my first book. And so uh, there is about a couple of weeks. There's still some copies out there with Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and some big companies, and, and, you know, and online, second, you know, secondhand bookstores, you know, AB, um, AB books. All right. You still find those, find those there, but um, soon enough um, there'll, there'll be a deluge of those back um, on all those platforms, as well as right now you can still get it off my website. All right, folks, we are here this morning on the prologue with Charles Clifford Brooks III, and we're going to be back with more from him after these messages. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And welcome back to the prologue. We're here this morning with Charles Clifford Brooks III. We know him as Cliff. Cliff is a poet, and he brings us his book, The Draw of Broken Eyes and Whirling Metaphysics. 
My name's Doug Dahlgren, and we're having a great time talking with him this morning. Now, Cliff, there's a commentary to many of these pieces in your book, like Nostalgia is a poem from Whirling Metaphysics. Can I share that with the audience? Do you mind if I read that one and then have you comment on it? Please do. All right. Folks, this is titled Nostalgia, and I'm reading from page 106 of Cliff's book for those who might be following along. Nostalgia is ruinous, a slow death of better days, some kind of undigested glory for lepers. To those who don't love it, it's a specious tale told by drunks. Now, everyone has memories glorified and all sorts of... uh, blown-up ideas of what their past was. Uh, is there a lesson to, to the rest of us in that poem, Cliff? When I sat down for that, it, to be nostalgic, I never wanted to say for a moment, is a bad thing, because we all remember our favorite Christmas. We always remember something about some maybe a family member that has passed that that, uh, that, that meant something to you. To remember to, to, to hold that dear is not in any way a negative thing. What I'm speaking of are those who seem to um, live exclusively in the past. Um, and, I, and being an alcoholic, you know, I, I uh, long, long, long recovered. Hello, my name is Cliff, and I'm an alcoholic. But uh, when, you, when, when you find those folks, and, I, and it came to me while I was sitting in a bar, that all the stories they tell is always in hindsight. And to me, it's like when you live as a as a nostalgic um, um, uh, way of life, is everything you tell number one becomes more and more grandiose as you tell it for the four thousandth time. But I mean, it it never really smacks of the truth. It's a very sad way to live. I think that you don't look forward anymore, but always consistently backwards. And that's why I mentioned the part about you know it's like. Um, it's a specious tale told by drunks. You know, it, it's 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 to to be stuck in one place. And we've all known those folks that graduate from high school and then you go on to college and and uh, or do whatever you want to do and you bump into them, bump into them again and they say, "Remember that time in tenth grade?" And you're thinking, "No, I I, I, I really don't." You know, it's 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 a it's a sad way I think in a very um a very um um soul-sucking kind of way to live that you never enjoy life anymore. Um, and that, and it's one of those uh, poems that, like many of those in my books, that they're the longer ones that are a journey and then those that just deserve that kind of snapshot because I think that's all people need to go, I know that person. or It's not to be judgmental, but I'd, it, it's, a, it's kind of a, a cautionary tale. I always look forward, you know. Never, never try to, you know, you know, walk backwards, and always think that what happened is the best it's ever going to be because it's never going to be any better if that's the way you live. And well, so, I mean, that was really. It's a great point because you know it's it's one of those descriptions. We all have these people in our lives, and it's amazing when right. they show up and when they go into this. And the worst part of it is when you really stop and consider it, we well might be that person in somebody else's life. So. It, <laughs> It, it gives you pause and good reflection on uh, living in the past, as you say. Exactly. All right. Now, listen, do you write all the time, all your waking conscious moments, or do you just write when you're inspired? All the time. And I wish I could turn it off sometimes. Um, uh, <clears throat> no, I, I take that back. It's a blessing that I do. But um, And I, 
<clears throat> and I also know what you mean about uh, <coughs> it might diverge just a little bit. The folks that say you have to sit down at one time every day and write that, and then you know. But to me, it, 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 there's that balance. I mean, to me, it's always the case of not trying to compose something deep, but I'll carry around these little moleskins and if I have ideas, I'll write it down. It's always coming out because life is what really inspires me. And I know that's cliche because so many people say that. But in the first book or the first two books, you'll see poems where it literally sounds and is me standing back looking at a social situation and trying to figure it out in my head in one of those what I call snapshot uh, poems of just little snippets of life, you know. Um, so it always, and to me, it's always engaging in it somehow because at least for me, if I go dormant, it's like trying, it's not just trying to restart a car that's cold in the winter, but almost putting it back together to learn and remember why and how I could get it on paper in the first place. So for me, it's always, always, always writing. Well, and you mentioned it casually there, but you offer poems of varying length and varying depth. Uh, some of them yeah. go into detail and express a feeling while there's some kind of like wolves. And we're talking about a poem on page 33 from the draw of broken eyes, uh, that, that just appear to plant a seed in somebody's mind. Now that's my take. It could be somebody else. It, it, is that close to what you intended? Yes. Yes. And, and honestly, to give you, and, and I found that a lot of poems, a poet's, you have the two kinds that read and then they feel like it's so sacred they can't explain it, which I think is cheating to those who want to, you know, and you want, don't want to spoon feed it to them because in a way it's like stealing Christmas from people who have found their own meaning in it. But to give them some kind of framework of just where you were when it happened, and um, that's what I'll do with Wolves and the fact that um, I was living in Atlanta at the time. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and uh, we were riding down with friends coming back from a party, and uh, you see these shadows, uh, you know, kind of like T.S. Eliot's Hollow Men, uh, haunting alleys, not, you know, not saying drug dealers, but the, the homeless is really kind of, what I'm looking into, and then when you look around, you do see those that are not homeless, but they have that that lupine look in their face on, on trying to sell whatever wares they have. And it, it was it, the moment happened so fast, the glimpse of them happened so fast that it's the same kind of idea you see in a wolf. Wolves don't just hang out and go, "Hey, cousin, want to grab a beer?" I mean, they're there, and then they're not. You know, so the, the danger also of 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 uh, being in that situation had your car broke down. Um, having to deal with those people, maybe if you're walking on the street, and so wolves was that's where the the, the title wolves came from. And when I put it on paper, it was on a, I know this is cliche, it was on a, a bar napkin that I had on me. Um, I kind of juxtap- juxtap- the juxtap- juxtaposition between the possible drug dealers and the homeless led to a very succinct uh, three stanzas on kind of. Speaking to them both. Could, so, we, uh, could we ask you to read that for us? Is that is that going I would, to be? Would you do I that? would love to. All right. Yeah, it'd be my honor. All right, folks, we're going to be listening to Clifford Brooks. He's going to be reading Wolves. Wolves. This addiction and that pale glow. Resolute, swaggering, bristling. Our echoes of honest men. There you go. 
you uh, you pretty well described it ahead of time. Uh, the takeaway from this is that we're all pretty much close to that. Exactly. I mean, being an alcoholic and 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 in that last panza, I realized that I was speaking to myself as far as like once you are addicted to something, and I'm not trying to preach, or when you you find it, and even in a bad relationship where you feel like you lose a part of yourself. That whole idea of I'm, I'm an echo of the honest man I used to be. Just like these folks were not born evil, but they're echoes of honest men that once stood in the skin that they now walk. You've written for many years, and you decided to concentrate on poetry. You mentioned an agent having some effect on that. Was that the total decision, or what really made you decide to concentrate strictly on the poetic form? Um. <clears throat> when I was, and I'm, you know, again, storyteller, I will truncate this. When I was about 35 years old, um, an agent in New York got a hold of me and had read and been introduced to some um, colleagues of his about this way that I could uh, manipulate and, and, and sharpen prose. And so he got a hold of me through email and said, would you send me a uh, novel synopsis I've heard about, some short stories? And... Of course, at that age, having no real tie into that that echelon of, of publication, I was like, "Hell yeah, let's do this!" And so I got I printed it all out, put it in an envelope, and at the last second, which again I only say that God said, "Cliff, man, look, trust me, just do it." I had three poems. Now, people have written poetry their whole life and gone to such a programs and study and study study. I'm not putting them down, but they tend to hate me on this. I took those three poems that really most that I'd written in college. And I said. Why not? Let's throw them in there. Three days later, the uh, the assistant of the agent called me and said, we love this prose, and this novel idea is a great, and we have, we've never seen anybody go in this direction, but, and I was like, oh, here it comes, they're going to dump me. This poetry speaks in a way that hasn't been seen, and you already mentioned his name, but of, of Dickie. Now, I, you know, being the comedian and, and kind of being a cynic, I looked at my phone, and I was like, which one of my jackass friends are pulling my leg? And then when I saw it again, the number was from New York. I was like, all right, let's not curse yet. Let's just not, not, don't curse. And I said, um, well, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, I love poetry. And I always did. I always respected it. You know, and I, like I said before, I didn't really get deep into it because prose was more my thing. But, um, again, you get that foot in the door, and um, she said, well, let me let you talk to Mark. I was like, all right. So Mark got my agent on the phone and said the same thing, and, <laughs> I wish I could say it was different. He says, uh, you know, do you have any more of this? And I lied through my teeth. Yeah, of course I do. I have poetry lying in hallways of it. I have to shut down computers that's so full of poetry. I mean, I'm just glad you asked it. I didn't know what I was going to do with it. And then he said, well, it's Friday. This is Friday at 430. And he says, uh, well, can I have 80 pages by Monday, the following Monday by 5? On the outside, I'm Fonzie. Hey, no problem. I can, you don't, you sure don't want it now? On the inside, I was weeping, weeping hard. And, um, I, you know, but again, you get your foot in that door and you're going to make it happen, Captain. So, uh, as soon as I got off the phone, I turned on my, um, autistic ability, not just making fun of that, but being high, high functioning autistic. I put this, this, this unwavering focus, and I still had the word and the melody, always loving music. And it was honestly the, the God given um, uh, grace to 
used that to form what became my voice. And over three days, I hammered out the 80 pages that became Whirling Metaphysics. And so was I made a, po- a poet? No. But it really showed me that that poet had always been in there. And uh, it, it just it was a very, very, very short uh, crash course into getting that talent honed. But just so people think that it wasn't that easy, it took about another eight, ye- eight years, eight months to really hone what became Whirly Metaphysics. And then when the girl took off and that tragedy <laughs> happened, um, I then thought, like any other sane poet, I thought, I'll write another book that's of the memories I didn't talk about that was more current to my day now, and I'll hide this code in there, but it has to be of the same quality to fit the rest of the book, and 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 and, and luckily it worked. And, and we're um, going to have to take a break here, Cliff. We'll get back yes. and finish that thought. We're here on the prologue. I'm Doug Dahlgren. We're listening to Clifford Brooks talking about his great book, and we'll be back after these messages. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And welcome back to the prologue. My name is Doug Dahlgren. We're glad you're here this morning. We've got with us Charles Clifford Brooks III. He is a poet. He's a dang good poet. He's been telling us about his decision a number of years ago. Uh, He's been a writer all his life, basically, and he made the decision to concentrate on poetry. And we had to interrupt Cliff in the middle of his telling us about that. So, Cliff, why don't you pick up and finish the thought that you had on why you decided to really be a poet. It never would have struck me, uh, writing fiction, uh, that this might happen, but what made it a easy, not easy, uh, that sounds glib, but a, a more natural uh, segue into it is that 
and not knowing at the time that this was going to work so well is that I listen to music all the time. And not just that, but when I write, I, I will pick a certain song, depending on the mood that I'm in, um, to help me um, galvanize what I'm trying to do on page, on the page. But when I started writing poetry, the music became a much more integral part of it. And I didn't know then, like I found out later, that it's because, not to mimic the song, but that melody, and you'll see it in my poetry, I don't do the sing-songy, in-word kind of, uh, of, of verse uh, construction. I'm much more of a fan of the internal rhyme. And that's as far as I've ever seen it. But then when I said before, the musicians came up to me and said, really, I mean, the, the internal rhyme, and I, and I play music and no music, that inadvertently, uh, it's like, you know, I, I design it like I would a symphony or a song or a ballad. And um, and so that helped me get into how I developed my voice. Um, it became a much more uh, effective tool for me to tell stories in a much more, of course, shorter way of, uh, of, of getting my words and my thoughts across, uh, you know, where, you know, of course, novels take a little bit longer. But um, it, for me, once I got into poetry, the most, and, and again, when I tell people, I, you know, I really only started writing for three years, but it was an extremely intense three years where that's all I did and learned just, you know, you hear it all the time about how you need to hone your voice. That's how I did it. You know, again, in just finding out how I spoke things, how I thought things, how I put things together. And um, the 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 attention to detail and, and the... Um, the ability to not do like a dog with a bone, not not you know get frustrated, but to write for hours because again, it's, it's like Christmas when you find something you love, you want to do it all the time. And the autism, and it's something that I don't shy away from. I mean, again, you got different, you know, just just like with depression, you have all of these different shades of gray. There's not just one kind, but this was the it was it was it was an uh, it, it was a huge advantage to me, which, and I mean, we're going to have to whole, have a whole other show of this, is that I'm not judging anybody, but it, it is a, not to be, a, um, not to be grandiose, but it is a God-given gift to be able to have that kind of focus, that kind of energy, that kind of, um, and now people can see it as antisocial because I can kind of lose time and, 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 you know, and get, get lost in what I'm doing. And, and I think in a big degree, not just to make myself feel better, it's critical when you're writing because you have to stay in that moment and be in that moment. And when I hear people talk about, um, and me also having some of the more, I guess, bipolar kind of traits, which, I mean, as I say it, and I'm not in any way putting them down as well, is the, the, the passion I'm able to well up to make sure what I'm writing is pure. When I launched kind of a campaign against is that this same kind of, uh, mental uniqueness has been used to a nauseating degree for way too many to justify horrible behavior and self-detrimental. I just can't do it because I'm broken, you know. Um, and so I, I kind of I never make it a, a grandstanding kind of place to stand. If you these things are not given to us, and now fortunately there are some that cannot function um, because of the severity of it. But the, the, if you stand back and realize, why do I have this? Why do I have this energy? The panic attacks, the anxiety, I never had again once I sat down and focused on the writing, what made me happy. I don't sleep at night. I write all night. 
Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a nighttime kind of person, but once I focused it on the writing, I realized that this this God given gift is has allowed me to have that 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 energy where it's necessary to to create this and not just create it, but to hone it and edit it and stay on it. Where you know, and to give me that peace that I have during the day. So if I'm hearing you right, uh, you have a clinical diagnosis of autism. Yeah, high functioning autism, and it was it was very recently. Um, for years, I was kind of haunted because bipolar was like the go-to thing, and and, and you know, go-to diagnosis, and yeah. and I was medicated with med- that that was wrong. And then it was very recently that my my current doctor, and I cannot stress enough, is that the medicine is getting that person that has done the study in that area, and he thought he was gonna he was gonna hurt my feelings. He says, "Have you ever thought that you're more?" I just don't see the bipolar thing that you. This, this, autism, and he kind of stood back thinking I was going to cry, and I just, that's it. You know, that, that's, you know, that, that, that makes, you know, and everything to me kind of gelled into now I know what I'm dealing with. Now I'm not so confused. Now I know, you know, because, again, the medicines they were giving me were making it much worse because that's not what I was supposed to be medicated for. And I'm also hearing that rather than using that for uh, victimhood status, you decided to use the positive aspects of it and focus that into your writing. I think that's yes, amazing. Sir. That's amazing. Listen, I want to ask you something. Are there particular rules in poetry that apply in all cases? Yes. God bless you for asking me that. Um, and people are going to want to throw stones and, you know, go ahead and do it. Grammar applies. Proper grammar applies. You know, it, it uh, the, 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 the crux of why poetry was created was way back during oral tradition because when rhyming is used, it's easier to remember. Now, when you see Sandberg, Frost, Langston Hughes, uh, when you see uh, St. Vincent Millay, the, uh, William Carlos Williams, um, uh, um, good Lord, I can go on forever, like Wallace Stevens, they tell stories. Even though they're short, you know, some of them can be, they tell stories. People love a story. Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot, I'm trying not to swear here, they decided that they were going to take poetry and shelve it into this cryptic nonsense that no one could understand. And it's by and large, just not on them, but those who were, you know, they came afterwards that thought, I'm a shitty poet. But if I put it in this cryptic nonsense and brag about the books that I can't, that no one else has read, languages no one else reads, they'll just assume I'm a genius. And poetry is supposed to be accessible. It's supposed to be relatable, and it's not supposed to 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 be there as a I'm smarter than you are. And that has been the one thing that has pushed people away from poetry so far that. When I have poetry readings, and like in the collective, we have what's called collective sessions, we have musicians come in. We'll never call it a poetry uh, reading because people won't come. They won't. I mean, for for damn good reason, you know. And 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 if you're, it's it's the storytelling element and the accessibility of it that that, and then using techniques like dialogue and and in your poetry and uh, leaving enough elasticity there for people to read their own lives into it. You don't want to spoon feed them um, because that's just prose. But, I mean, to um, look at poetry and 
apply the same rules. Like somebody, people keep misquoting Faulkner by saying, you know, you learn the rules and break them. He never, ever said that, ever. Now, I mean, you can experiment a little bit. Now, E.E. E. Cummings did it, and he's E.E. E. Cummings, and he's a genius. Bukowski, I just I threw up a little bit in my mouth. I'm sorry. Let me let me get back to it. He had some good pieces, but it's not it, – it, it, it's there's a respect to it, and people say there's not just one way. And no, there's not just one way, but the grammar, the uh, expression, the line breaks, the, 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 the main maintenance of one linear story – um, these things are critical that have been thrown out the window. And if it's one mission I have in my life, you know, it's to, to and it's and actually the next project that a publisher is talking to me about doing is a very short book on the rules of poetry. Now, if you disagree with me, fine. I mean, I'm one of those people that have no ego. If I'm wrong, prove me wrong. But what has worked time and time again is when you write in a way, like Chaucer started it. You know, it's like, hey, let's not write in this language no one knows. Let's write in the language that people understand. And lo and behold, people bought those books because they can put themselves in that story. There, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's a very passionate point of mine that, that rules are there for a reason, oh, just yeah. like in fiction. You know, so yes, sir, I'm, I'm glad you asked me that question. All right, very good. There's a couple things in there I, I wish we had more time to, to really go off on, but you mentioned the oral techniques. In other words, storytellers. And, and I think I heard you say that, that the rhyming was initially – uh, devised as just a technique, a tool that these storytellers right. used to keep in place what they were telling people. That's an amazing exactly. thought. I never considered that. And then again, we always are going to have highbrows that come along and and take take the art and and try to make it something that's just theirs, that like you said, nobody else can understand. And that may be why a lot of people today have that preconceived uh, aversion to poetry that folks like yourself are trying to cut through and get us back down to what it actually is. Let me ask you this real quick. We're up against a okay. break. What does it take to be a poet? You have to have an innate sense of rhyme and music. Music and poetry cannot be divided. I don't know, they, are, they are cousins. The only thing, the only difference between a poem and a song is that a song is a hook and a chorus. I mean, the musicality there is exactly the same. And, again, it's like, you know, in, going back for just one second, these poets that do that, that only they can understand, why would you do that unless you're going to keep it for yourself? Because you, you're already right out of the gate explaining to yourself, no one else is going to get it. So why do it unless it's just for yourself? A lot of ego in there sometimes. Oh, Lord Jesus. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> Listen, Tell the folks right quick, we're up against that break. Tell them again where they can find out more about you and order your book. The, my book, uh, right now, before the re-release happens, go to my website, www.cliffbrooks.com. There's also a GoFundMe account that, uh, if you, that, that supports the entire collective now as we launch into a bigger, uh, a bigger scene of touring and, and, um, and establishment and the LLC that, uh, if you, if you donate enough, um, again, like the tiered, you can get it, get one of my books for your donation. And we're going to talk more about the Southern Collective Experience when we come back with Cliff Brooks after these breaks. Awesome. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. 
His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And we are back. Good morning again. We're here on the prologue with Charles Clifford Brooks III. Cliff's a poet. We've been having a great time talking about him and his work and uh, what makes poetry, what makes it tick, what, what it, does it take to be a poet. And he's been very open and upfront asking a lot, asking or answering a lot of questions for us on that. Now, real fast, you've got very strong opinions on self-publishing. Can you, can you in 30 seconds or less, tell us what those are? Yes. Now, I do not want to irritate, and I'm trying to put a disclaimer here. The difference, the, right up front, if you self-publish for uh, a Christmas gift for your family, for a small group of friends, that's not what I'm talking about. There's no harm, no foul. What I get is when people come in, in the readings, they get a snarl on their face, and they've already done it, and they, you know, they know my answer. The question is, what is the worst prop, what mis- worst mistake you can make in legitimate publishing? Legitimate means bookstores carrying it. It means that, you know, being nominated for awards. It means that you have gone through the gauntlet of fire and trial by error of the, uh, editors and the, uh, being rejected by others. It is a virus. Self-publishing, vanity publishing is what I call it, is a virus. Now, if you're trying to couch it as in the rest of it, and I don't care how snotty it sounds, it is not the same. And I don't judge those who do it. I get most infuriated with the companies that lie to these people saying that they're going to supply them with something that's going to put them in the, up in the, in the same echelon as those who earned it. Um, I can't go to a, uh, a, a, a Kinko's and print off a medical degree and say, well, I didn't pay to go to medical school, but I bought this piece of paper, and, and now I'm the same. It's not. It simply is not, and I'm going to get hate for this, but those are from people who know that I'm right. Um, and it's just, I mean, it cheapens, it's, it's cheating. And that, now, I don't want it to go away because that garbage makes anybody who has actually put the time in look like they have just, you know, gone to the stratosphere of genius. Um, and so, I mean, again, it's just, it, 
It's just one of those things that bothers me just because I'm, I have gone through that and I have hurt and I have, you know, just like all the others have earned that publisher, um, that, 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 that they have some sort of umbrage with me on that. That's the big difference. It's cheating. Well, what you're saying is people need to uh, do their due diligence. They need to pay their dues and, and get in there with it, right? And there, there's all kinds of discussions about, you know, the validity of self-publishing today, and I certainly understand where you're coming from. Can we move forward? Because i got a lot about yes. you I want to bring yes. up. Now, you founded, about what, six years ago, you founded a group called the Southern Collective Experience. And, yes, sir. and in that short period of time, you've garnered up a, how many members do you actually have? Right now, we have up to 25 in all of the arts, uh, every single art form, and um, all of them uh, applied to be in it. It is a uh, is a company. Uh, I am interviewed and brought in to talk to colleges about the business of art. All of those that are in the group have, and they don't all about the money, but they have they earn their income doing it. Uh, if not in it, some of it, but if not all. I created it because I wanted a family of professionals to go against the cliches that, that artists are rife with. I also, when my book, first book came out, I started, you know, and then you get success, you get bit on by every angle, by those who are petty, and I wanted to have a family. As shitty as it sounds, a family, that's really what we're all about, that protect each other, support each other. It's, it's created a magazine that now has 85,000 readers internationally known called the Blue Mountain Review. We have a show on NPR called Dante's Old South. Um, and, uh, it's, 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 it's run by people who know the business that we are actually starting a series of, of, of lectures to help people not being, not being selfish, but wanting people to see not how we do it, but just what works. And, um, it's, you can find it by www.southerncollectiveexperience.com to see, you know, exactly what we're doing. We're not clandestine about it whatsoever. And it, it, it's, for me, it, it's, it's a way to change the, uh, the the look of what art is now and all these cliches the cliches that we have earned and it is um it is it, is grown by leaps and bounds but we keep the, the we keep the roles we keep those in it or the um the the employees rather as it is as a board to a very small amount because you know again once it gets too big you can't you know you know hold it and uh, these these other artists are from other other genres. They're not all and genres and all over the country. It's not people think you know that it, it's something just for the south, you know, Southern America. It's okay. a Dixie spirit, and it's all over the place. And you have listed on the website. You have uh, members, and people can see what these members are, and you can look up and find out yes. what they've done. And then you also have affiliates, yes. organizations, and those known as affiliates. What do those folks do, real quick? Uh, it's just the, those that we work together with that, that we support them and they support us and uh, and it cross pollination. I mean, artists hurt themselves the most by insulating themselves because they don't want to share. And we created a, a network from you know all you know MFA programs to other magazines to Yale University to you know um, to you know those that not just that we are friends with, but those with like minded missions. Because just because we do something kind of similar. It's to enhance the entire idea of what art is in the professional world. Okay. Now, you are a teacher, and you teach regular yes. classes. What is it you teach and where? I teach at uh, Chattahoochee Technical College, and I teach uh, all subjects save math. Okay. Which I'm not against. It's just I couldn't fit into my schedule. All right. And you also do seminars. Um, yes. 
would you, would you tell us real quick what are some of the subjects that you talk about in these seminars, and are there any new ones that are on the horizon? Uh, I just finished the Writers High Retreat in Breastdown Ball last weekend with the Broadleaf Organization in Atlanta. Uh, I have the Altoona Festival coming up. I have the Milton Festival coming up. And then I have individual uh, sessions that I have by appointment. Next year starting, we're going to, uh, we call it the Red-Headed Stepchild Arts. We're not going to really call it that. It's not, you know, we're going to find a better title, but it's for songwriters, playwrights, and poets. Specifically, they kind of get met, missed by the whole um but by, by, by most of the others, you know, so, and I have that on my website. Now you've already admitted that you write all the time. So what's in the pipeline? Yes. What is new that we can expect soon from Charles Clifford Brooks III? Athena Departs is my next book. It picks up literally where my first book uh, stops, so you're not going to have to worry about reading the same thing again. Um, and then I also have a epic called The uh, Salvation of Cowboy Blue Crawford that's coming out uh, fall of next year. You've got a poem from Athena Departs that you want to share with us, something to do with I would. And so, would you go ahead and do that for us? I would. I would. I'd love to. It's one of my favorites. It's called The Father, Son, and Heaven's Favor. Every Sunday at dawn, Daddy brings his old dog to the big house. The hound always bounds towards the tool shed while Pops and I prop up against white front porch pillars. We are not ashamed nor shun folks across the street that shuffle single file in the church. Daddy and I are not so pious nor sinister to mock the flock or their minister. We are two of the few who need nothing new regarding redemption. This estate is the only Eden our life malign minds remember or believe in. Instead of seeking truth, to fear it, we celebrate the Holy Spirit in a smoke, squint against the sun, then whisper, Amen. If that's a sin, so be it. Content as the keepers of a quiet pulpit, we sit, seldom speak, and coalesce behind unbiased pines. We listen to the wind without need to justify or defend a force that wants for nothing. 200 acres of azalea, crown, and arcadia we offer no one. All of it is split by a river that washes away loss and cleans our saucy livers. I hum the hymns on hand in this hour, they are honed by a harmonica blown by little Walter. Infused, but not abused by the blues, my father says to me, we've had our good days, son, and we've had our bad. And then the seraphim and cherubim hover in the hush to hear how it's done. They witness the way a wise man loves his half-mad so broken son. And that would be Charles Clifford Brooks III reading from his upcoming book, Athena Departs. When can we expect that one to hit the stands? Spring of next year. All right. Very good. Well, listen, is there anything, real quick now, because we're right up against the wall, is there hey. anything that we have left out that you just really need to share with folks this morning? Be kind to each other. 
Outstanding. Just be kind to each other. Outstanding. Very good. Well, listen, Cliff, this Charles Clifford Brooks III, for those of you keeping track, I want to thank you, sir, for being with us this hour. You are a terrific writer and entrepreneur, and you've been a great guest, and we hope to have you back very soon. I hope to, too. The honor is mine, sir. Oh, very good. Best of luck to you, the new book, The Southern Collective Experience, and all of its members, and all that you've got going on. Now, listeners, I want to thank you for being here as well this morning. Please tell all your friends about the show and how they can listen to the free podcast that's going to be available by simply clicking on the links at americaswebradio.com. And remember, if you or anyone you know would like to be a guest on the prologue, please, to talk about your book or, or whatever it is that you'd like to do, email me at doug at americaswebradio.com or doug at dougdahlgren.com. Now, that's it for this hour. I want to thank everybody for being here. Especially, I want to thank Charles Clifford Brooks III. This has been a hoot, and those of you from the South know what I mean by that. Uh, folks, I want to say for myself, I am Doug Dahlgren. And again, for our guest, I say, be good to yourselves and each other. Read a book. If it's not Cliff's, maybe you'll pick one of mine. And I'll see you all again in just 167 hours. Take care now. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.